0: Hey up friends, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr, you listen to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's a show where I try and explore the most interesting stories in skateboarding, surfing, snowboarding and other related endeavours. If you've listened before, you probably know that by now. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Little advert for me coming up. If you do, please feel free to check out some of my previous episodes over at my website www www.wearelookingsideways.com You're going to find my entire back catalogue of over 200 episodes with people such as Jamie Thomas, Ben Powell, Tim Letton-Boyce, Cairo Foster, Mark Munson, Lucy Adams, Leo Baker, and a whole lot more. Most of them have got full show notes, but I am a little bit behind at the moment of chatting, so not all of them uh, forgive me. You can also find this episode on my Substack page, which is lookingsideways.substack.com. We have a master, really lovely community right now. Substack is where I host my newsletter and now podcast. It's an ad and algorithm-free site, which I've found personally to be a really respectful, encouraging and welcoming corner of the internet. And it's where I tend to hang out these days when it comes to podcast stuff. I've even left the comments open on each of the episodes. Blimey, Um, it's not like YouTube. Don't worry about that. Uh, And yeah, there's quite often a really good chat going on about the episodes and uh, the other stuff that I post. You know, if like me, you've left Twitter and Facebook because it's full of absolute twats and you're pretty much over Instagram, then you might just like it. All right, let's get down to it. Um, And let's not mess about. I've got one of the cast iron, copper bottomed, Hot shit, no messing, absolute legends on the show today. Stacy Peralta. Stacy was in town to promote his new Patagonia film, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez. So I shamelessly called in every Patagonia favour I could. Thank you, Gabe, Rose, Susanna, and everyone else, and Hannah, sorry, to make sure I got to spend some time with him on the day of the premiere and to make sure we got a good old stint to do this interview. So, on the off chance you don't know who Stacy is, well, you might not realise it, but you have been influenced by him. Let's run the facts. At 15, he was part of the Z-Boys. At 19, he joined up with George Powell to form Powell Peralta. Soon after he formed the Bones Brigade, you might have heard of him, he followed this by producing um, The Search for Animal Chin and banned this. A few years later... I'm obviously skipping forward a bit, but this is the kind of career arc we're talking about. He then parlayed this experience into his current career as a director, making Dogtown and Z-Boys, Riding Giants, writing Lords of Dogtown, among many others. And today he balances a career as a highly successful commercial director um, with passion projects such as the Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez. I'm sure you get the point, Stacy is one of the biggest cultural figures in our world. If you listen to this podcast or you've stood sideways on any craft, you have been influenced by Stacy Peralta. I mean, even my weird little career is basically following the template set by Stacy and his peers on a very minor level. He is a giant in every sense. So how then to approach a conversation with such a figure, especially when you've only got an hour and he spent three weeks doing interviews already, you know, there's always the fear it'll devolve into the usual junket chat where the guard is up and the only topic on display is the thing the guest is there to promote. This incidentally is why I tend not to do many of this type of interviews, even though I do get offered a lot of them. Um, and if you've listened to this for a while or even on and off over the years, you probably realise I try not to do the chronology or the career debrief. I mean, I might cover it and I do want to cover it, but in a way that's insightful and revealing and perhaps a little bit less obvious. So I'm very grateful to say that this is the conversation we ended up having. Stacy embraced the spirit of the pod wholeheartedly and showed himself to be the curious, creative, humble, vulnerable and truly generous human that I had a feeling he might be incredible time and insights in this one a lot of gold from somebody who has really defined the board riding conversation for the last four decades as you might be able to tell I loved it hope you do too I'll be back at the end with the usual housekeeping corner but in the meantime here's me and Stacey enjoy Um, right here it's all right. Yeah, yeah, you've done. Oh, of one,
1: two, three, one. Is that what you said test?
0: No, oh. no, just just distance. Yeah,
1: Do you right. You want it here? If that's all right, yeah, okay.
0: yeah. Um, thank you. No this go. is me. Yeah, that's you. Okay. Um, yeah, this is quite loose, really. No gender. Okay. Um, obviously we'll talk about the film. Okay. Um, but really. As these guys will testify, haven't been on. It's a pretty free form. Just happy to see where it leads, really. Sure. No, no sure. gender, okay. you know. Um, so, yeah, I think usually runs for about an hour. I tend not to edit, really. Okay. Just put them out as is. Okay. Um, oh, it's just straight? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. it's conversational is kind of, okay. you know. Um, and you I might.
1: You can't leave. I can't do this alone. We'll be I'm, I'm kidding. kidding. You have all this
0: time I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> see, see in about an hour.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) We're alone. There we go. Um, And yeah, I'm sure as as you're used to, I might end up doing that a little bit occasionally. Um,
1: How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. I just got done exercising, got done having a bowl of yogurt, and we're here talking.
0: Yeah. So you got a good, good kind of regime to keep healthy when you do this I do type have a, of thing. I
1: do I have a regime anyways, but I. it's a regime I can bring on the road with me. It's, it, it's not required. I do not require a gym. I've, okay. I figured out how to have a really good core routine that I do every day that doesn't require me having to go anywhere else but where I am.
0: Okay. Yeah. Is that like yoga-based? No, no, no. Based? It's
1: exercise. It's core exercise. Right, it's right. Push-ups, sit-ups, and... TRX and all this. Ah,
0: uh, yeah, like calisthenics, basically.
1: Yeah. yeah. Do you just, find just just, just to, and also pop-ups? A lot of surfing pop-ups. Okay. Yeah, every day. That's the hardest thing I do. Right. Yeah, and I do it just about every single day.
0: That's really good discipline. I've been on the road for two weeks, and I've been in camping in my van, and I've, I took the yoga mat. Had great intentions to be, you know, get up every, <laughs> every morning, and didn't quite work. Yeah. No. Yeah. What
1: happened is I used to go to the gym a couple of days a week, and then COVID happened and the gym closed and i don't i had to figure out a way to keep this up and I, I i developed a routine that was based out of my house yeah and i liked it and i decided why do this every other day why not just do this every single day and i started doing it every day and I went, wow, I like how I feel. Now, don't now, don't get me wrong. I get up every morning, and my brain says, "Why don't you not do it today? Yeah. Why don't you just do something else? Why don't you have another bully yogurt?"
0: I re- I read a good thing recently. A guy called Kevin Kelly, he used to edit Wired Wired. Yeah, right. So do you do you know his emails? That he no, sends but out? I, I've read his books. And yeah. So yeah. he sends out this email every birthday, which is like seventy things that I've learned at the age of seventy. He's also like a thousand true fans, isn't he? You know, he's got really great ideas. Yeah and I liked his thing he's a thinker he's a thinker and yeah. one of his things was like be the type of person that doesn't skip her that keeps the routine try and think of it as a routine you know like rather than like I need to do my exercise try and think of it as like something that you fit in which kind, That's of, it. kind of definitely is how I um, well, well, have every, found benefits me you know
1: everything good in your life you do you have to circumvent yourself in order to do it we all have our ways to stop ourselves from doing what's good for us. Yeah. And the trick is to figure out how to circumvent that voice that says, don't do this. How do you do that? So That's how, what you got to do. How, how do you do it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't do things I hate. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I don't like what I do yeah. when, with my exercises, but I don't do anything I hate. Right. Because if I hate it, I won't do any of it. But in addition to that, the other thing I do every day is I meditate every day okay. for at least an hour. Wow. Yeah, most important and that's the most important thing I do. Is that a recent practice? No, it's been something I've been doing for many years. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've never been able to to get on with it really. Um I which is one of the reasons I started doing yoga like quite regularly about sort of 6 or 7 years ago because I kind of thought well I need I'd benefit from some kind of mindfulness, you know, yeah. and that felt like a good way of kind of, of of
1: bringing it in, you know. It is all that breathing and stuff. It yeah, calms, it, it calms the mind.
0: Have you found your attitude to the to this has changed as you've got older? Attitude towards what? Just the the, the healthiness, the routine that you're talking about, like this these habits that you
1: describe in, which are kind of wellness habits, aren't they? Has it has it changed? I've always been pretty mindful of staying, you know, eating pretty well, but yeah. as I've gotten older and as I realize how quickly. Going downhill is and how harder it is to get back. Yes, that I've increased my activities. Yeah. And I continue to increase them, partially because I want to keep having fun doing what I'm doing, meaning yeah. I want to keep surfing, I want to keep skateboarding, and I want to keep learning new forms in surfing. And in order to do that, I have to stay on my game.
0: That's a really good segue to the first question that I wanted to ask you, which was actually about foiling. Um, because I saw your Instagram post about maybe two months ago, you put this post up and it was really interesting because obviously you were, did you read it? I did. Okay. And I, I really, you referred to, you, you know, how much you're enjoying foiling. Right. Um, but you also put it in the context of, of board sports. And
1: you actually referred
0: to to this period we're living through as like the Age of Enlightenment, I believe. Is it's the f-
1: action. This is the, the, I believe the, eight, the what we're living through is the action sports version yeah. of the Age of Enlightenment. Yeah,
0: which being like the post-Dark Ages explosion of intellectual ideas and curiosity, isn't yes. it? I really liked that idea. And, and as somebody with your long view on this, and as somebody who's obviously been a, a witness and a participant in all these like key stages in, in the history, felt like quite a significant observation that. And, and I, so I just wondered if you, you know, what, what you, where you were coming from with that. Is it just because of the flowering of ideas of these new, new
1: forms that we're experiencing that, that are opening up to more people? It has to do with when I look, when I compared my life to my dad's life, When my dad was born, baseball, basketball, and football were already in existence, as was track and field, which was his thing. When he died, all those sports were exactly the same as when he began. The only difference was that records were set, but they didn't invent a new form of basketball. They didn't invent new forms of track and field, okay? When I look at my life and all the sports that have been invented in my life in the action sports version, I've lived a completely different life than my father, completely. And I've had so much more to look forward to than him because of all the inventions of these sports, modern surfing, modern skateboarding, and all the tributaries of each one of them in surfing, windsurfing, kiteboarding, now foil boarding, toe surfing, SUP surfing, you know, um, river surfing, wave park surfing. Now there's foil surfing just in the ocean riding waves. I mean, We are living through one of the greatest times on planet earth and in 200 years, I believe people are going to look back on this 50 year period and go, wow, that must have been a great time to be alive when all of those sports were being born and all of those uh, maneuvers were being created at that time that have now 200 years later become a language, a physical language. But we're so busy living through it, we don't even see it. That's why I
0: really liked it, because it was a really welcome bit of perspective, you know, like to say, actually... Because it can, it can be tribal, can't it? You know, It is pe- tribal. And no, people- like, wait,
1: wait, surfing is a very close-minded thing, y- Exactly.
0: Man. It's quite a rare thing for somebody with, again, like your long view to be like, well, hang on, let's stand back a minute here and let's look at this. You yes. know, like this is...
1: This is actually like an extraordinary period. It's an extraordinary period, yeah. and we're so lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, but 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 here's the here's the downside of it, is so many surfers get into their fixed mold. Oh, I only ride nine foot boards. Oh, I only ride six foot boards. I only do this. It's like I don't live that way. I want to experience all of them. I want to. I learned to kiteboard. I'm now I'm learning to foil. I learned to SUP. I want to do all of it because I don't want to miss out.
0: Yeah. Cause you can also see that kind of slightly inherent snobbery with the reaction to foiling. For example, you know, like people are a bit like, Oh, cause I sit at my local beach. There's a couple of people on foils and there's, that they're not very well liked, you know. Like amongst the locals, it's a bit like, oh, here they are again ruining it for everybody.
1: You but know. what are they ruining it because they're riding a piece of real estate no one even wants? Yeah, they're I mean, riding I just, what it,
0: surfers can't even ride. It, exactly, it's just a really interesting dynamic, isn't it? Like you say, it's it, that tends to be the, the initial knee-jerk reaction to it, which but, was with SUP too. Exactly, but when you as you say, when you stand back and you look at it, and the other thing I was going to say to you, which I'm sure you've got a view on, is it really speaks to the fact that progression is essentially the foundation, isn't it? Because I'm not just talking about like trick progression, cultural progression as well is equally, and again, something that you've obviously spent your career documenting. Like it's is huge. is is
1: also sort of the point, isn't it, of these things? It's what it's how they were born in the first place, yeah, and it's what attracted all of us in the first place. Let me let me. I want to share something with you. In the Q&A's that we've had for the Lopez film while we've been on tour here in Europe, one of the questions that we've gotten at the Q&A's from really good longtime surfers has been this, which is, what do we do now? The lineups are getting so crowded, what do we do? It's not like it used to be. And my answer is this, learn a new form of surfing. If it's too crowded to do what you've always done, be grateful for the days that you had and learn a new form. For instance, I've experienced the same thing. It, it got too crowded for me. I, didn't, I don't wanna compete against 17-year-old kids. I did that, I don't wanna do that anymore. So I learned to kiteboard. It put me in a different condition set in the ocean. I'm now doing harder turns and going faster on a surfboard and flying through the air in ways I could have never dreamed of on a surfboard. So all I had to do was just change my paradigm I can't have what I used to have. Yeah. Okay. Well what can I have? Well I can have that. And now I want to do the same with foiling. I want to take what that offers. And it offers us surfing with different conditions. And for me it's it's exploded my appetite for surfing. These other avenues. Well s- uh, exploded it. And again, it it, it it that that change, that constant forward
0: movement, that flux, that progression, whatever you call it. It's kind of the point, isn't it? It's kind of the heart of it. Like, can you you get you can you can control like that yourself? Because you do have all these options, you do have all these avenues which you can which you can you can experiment with, you can try. Um, But yeah, it seems it can we we can as as surfers, skateboarders, snowboarders can get a little bit stuck. It's quite it's quite striking how quickly those cultures can become quite traditionalist and inward looking. Oh man, there there's so much prejudice in it. Yeah, it's incredible. Is that something that you've I mean, it's, it's an obvious thing. Let me thing. throw
1: this at you. When I, first, when I first started writing, okay. I initially bought an SUP board 18 years ago. I didn't want to surf it. I was against it, okay? Right. I bought it just to paddle because I thought it was an efficient way to paddle as exercise. When I would come in from the paddle, once in a while I would catch a wave. Well, after a while, I went, wait a minute, you know, this is really fun. <laughs> and I slowly started to surf and then I slowly started to get smaller and smaller SUP boards and I slowly started to get into it and really get into it. And I would come in on the beach after an SUP session and my friends would say, man, you're the only guy getting waves out there and you're not bothering anybody. You're off to yourself. You're writing pieces and bits and pieces. Yeah. And I went, why don't you try it? Oh, no, 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 no way. And what I discovered, and this is something Jerry and I have talked about, getting good at something is a curse because it prevents you from ever wanting to be a kook and learning something new again, okay? What I learned is when I had to go from surfing to SUP, I had to go through a kook phase. When I went and learned kiteboarding, I had to go through a kook phase of being really bad at something, not knowing if I would ever be good at it. That's a really uncomfortable place to be. Well, it hits you straight in the ego, doesn't it? It does, and yeah. it's crushing. And you never, you don't know if you're going to overcome it. No. But that's what I realize keeps so many surfers from advancing into other areas of surfing is they're they're not willing to go through that.
0: Well, it's also a really interesting idea, isn't it? Because with creativity, often breakthroughs come from restrictions. You know, they 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 can they, for, they can force you to to think in a way that will solve the problem for you. It becomes almost like a problem solving mindset, doesn't it? And cause I snowboard a lot I'm, I'm, and I'm not a very good skier, but one of the things I find really interesting when I do ski is like the way it makes me relook at the mountain because obviously I can't.
1: Cause you stop looking like looking at it like a snowboarder.
0: Yeah. Well, and also not even that it's just like on a snowboard, I can, I can go where I want, you know, like I can just, I know I, I, know I can go anywhere that I want, but suddenly I'm on skis and I'm like, Oh right. This is different. <laughs> you know, like I car, and it and it is, you do have to sort of subsume that part of your ego and you do have to kind of like you say it just, it just makes experience like less obvious a bit more rewarding and it's the same, same like I'm right. a terrible you know SUP server like supper I've, I'm awful at it. but when I've done it like you say you have to look at different parts of the wave you have to position yourself differently and it, it is it is a different experience, right. and we, I mean, and this is why I kind of brought that up really because I I, I thought that that comment that you were making was it was such a fascinating kind of alternative view that you don't really hear that often. Because Which one was that on the on the Instagram post, the Age of Enlightenment oh, oh, thing? Of Enlightenment. The, the thing that sort of brought me into this this thread, if you like. Mm-hmm. So with this sort of general topic of progression, it's a big theme of the film. You know, like there's. I really like the sequence at the end of, of Jerry kind of learning to foil. You know, and that whole sequence of of being a beginner. Right. It's really revealing because right. it because it really it really shows how humble he is, how willing to be vulnerable he is. Right. And it and it kind of talks about these speaks these themes. Obviously, you guys have discussed. Right. Um, but I'm interested in your approaches. Before we get into the specifics of the film, which obviously we, we will do. Um, I'm really interested in your approach to like what stories you choose to tell as a filmmaker, because obviously you've got, you know, you've made your films last sort of 20, 20 years that, that have broken like Dogtown Z-Boys, Riding Giants, and now this one. Um, Feels like you were in London. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> is that the trash bin? That or is, trash? that is the recycling man. They're going to come crushing. Everyone, come breaking that listens, through this wall. everyone that listens to this is like, we're, we're used to, we're used to it. Um, Yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm assuming that there's quite a, Well, that's the question, really. Is there quite a long gestation period where you're thinking about the stories you want to tell? I actually
1: had a hard time saying yes to this film. I didn't know if I wanted to make it. I didn't know if I could make it. I didn't know how to tell Jerry's story. Really? I didn't know who Jerry was. Even though I've known him for 20 years, I didn't really understand who he was. And I've surfed with him before, and he can be a terror in the water, man. Well, another great thread in the film. Yes, The fact that you actually go there, I thought was really good. Well, he had to, but he can be a terror. But on land, he's this peaceful guy. And so I was having a conversation with a friend of mine one day. And I said, I don't know who he is. Is he that tiger shark in the water or is he this peaceful guy in the land? And my friend really pointed something out to me. He said, you're trying to look at Jerry Lopez as one thing. He's not one thing. He's both those things. He can be a terror in the water and he can be a peaceful guy on land. He goes, look at him as both. That was really helpful. The other thing that was really helpful is we, I learned how to kiteboard with a group of people and Jerry was part of that group. We learned together. We were kiteboarding one day. I got out, I was in the water early before everybody else. So I got, I took a break during the midday. Yeah. And it was a perfect, perfect day. Hair blow dryer wind, just perfect. And I was watching Jerry and he was trying to learn what's called a down loop. And it's a tricky thing to do with your kite that gives you a lot of speed. And I saw him try it and he fell. And when you fall and your kite falls and lands in the water, it's about a 10 minute reset, Yeah. okay? So when I saw him do that, I thought, oh, he's not gonna do that again. He's not gonna sacrifice this day to try to learn that trick again. He got up, he did it again, he fell on his face. Kite fell. And I thought, okay, that's two times. He's not gonna do that again. (laughs) He got up, did it again, fell again right in his face. He did this for the rest of the day. He sacrificed this perfect day to learn this trick that he never got. And I went, wow, it was the first time I saw behind the curtain that things aren't so easy for Jerry. Yeah, yeah. He makes everything look easy. Yeah. But behind the curtain, he has to work just as hard as everybody else. And that was the second thing that I looked at and went, okay, he has just given me an in to understand him.
0: So, as a, as a creator, as a filmmaker, as a, somebody creative, is that, are you always looking for those? Signs, ways in, clues—you know, like interactions that give you the the, the meaning you're looking for.
1: Yeah, because you described a well, couple. Of especially th- with him, because he's just such an enigma. Yeah, Jerry doesn't say much. He's an enigma. Y- if you look at the way he wrote Pipeline, he didn't leave a trail. He didn't even let the wave know he was riding it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so he—that's his—that's been his life. He's like—and he told me one time, his dad told him. Be like a high diver. Don't leave a splash. And that's the way he is. So it was hard to figure out what, who is this guy. So is,
0: and is that, were these insights that you're referring to, were they, when you were through, in the middle of the process? Or were, they, or were these things that you could use to kind of like
1: try and unpick what the film is going to be about? Well, you got to understand that before I sit down and interview somebody, I have to know all the questions I'm gonna ask them. I have to know all the answers I'm looking for. So I have to know as much about this person in advance before we begin that process. And whatever I can't get from that person, I have to get from other people I surround him with in the film. So it's a tricky process. You have to to pre-think so much of it. So are you, you,
0: because that's really interesting, is obviously someone that also does a lot of interviewing. And that have, have, has thought a lot about the approach that you take and how you get these insights. Because obviously you've got to take an editorial stance at the end of the day, haven't you? You need to, you need to have a position and you need Yeah, to, and it
1: has to be based around the journey of his life, all of the points in the journey, all you, the chapters. But when you've got the added sort of factor,
0: like you say, that he's quite straight, he's quite enigmatic, he's not somebody that's going to, it seems like... He's not also, he's also not overly articulate... Yeah, and that's the other thing that that I thought was really fascinating about the way that you approached it, and the way that you've taken the yin and yang idea as this central pillar of the film because it enables you to bring in all these different elements, and it make and it makes sense because it's tied
1: together by this cohesive idea. Right. Um, was that well? The other idea is that in the seventies, Jerry was probably the most soulful surfer. Yeah, and he was also the most commercial. Another the, paradox. the complete paradox yeah. of both of them. He was on both, you know, sides of this thing. Yeah. So how did you? How do you
0: choose the the? Because there's there's some great collaborators and and contributors in the film. You got Warshaw, you've got Sam George. Like, how do you? Do you have an idea about the the, the the tales and the context you want to get out of these participants as well? Oh, I know exactly you? what I
1: want from them. Really? That's Oh so my god! Exactly. Right. One of the other reasons I didn't want to make this film, and I don't know if you know this, you or you must know this, but It is really difficult to find people that can give good interviews. It's very difficult. I'm not going to say anything. Okay. (laughs) It's very difficult. It's very difficult in this in the action sports world to find people. I choose my guests pretty carefully. I know very carefully because you need to get people that number one know the. The field yeah. know the history, but then can explain the history. Yeah. Hence, that's and why com- Sean and be comfortable. Yes, that's why Sean Thompson's in the film. That's why Michael Thompson's in yeah, the film Sean- because those guys are tribal elders. Yeah, they know their history and they also know how to verbally express it. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to find people like that. Let me say one more thing. I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, a lot of people ask me, they know that I've been around some of the greatest athletes in the world. Yeah. Okay. And they ask me what they're like. And I'm not saying, and this is not to anybody in specifically, but some of the greatest, most accomplished people in life are really uninteresting but let me explain why no i'm loving this <laughs> what what ma- what what makes them interesting is their single-minded approach to what they have accomplished yeah of course that's also what makes them uninteresting yeah because of their single-minded approach what makes a person interesting is their interest in others and their interest in looking at the world outside of themselves and people of high accomplishment frequently not always are so focused on their own life, they don't look outside. And as a result, they're not that interesting.
0: Yeah, well, it's like the- Have fun- you found that? Well, completely And my, so, I mean, I made a conscious choice not to interview high profile <laughs> professional athletes in their early 20s. <laughs> to Because I just, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've, I've interviewed over the years for, I'm, I mean, I'm a written journalist, so I've interviewed a lot of action sports people over the years just not that interesting there's only so many times you can hear somebody say you know it's all about riding powder with your friends or like <laughs> where you're like, like okay yeah
1: that. I, the worst thing is that I hate is it, look if you don't surf I just can't explain to you how great it is I hate that it's like if you can't explain to me how great something is then don't tell me it's great
0: yeah you know what I mean that's a great answer and it really yeah it makes me feel better about my uh, editorial position to be honest <laughs> no you have a hard job it's really
1: hard look it's hard to find people That can clearly give you a paint the picture of a story and tell you, you know, tell you something where you can walk away and go, I got something from that. Yeah, yeah. I got something. Yeah. But I want to go back to something we were just saying. Sure. Please do. Because it ties to the film. We talked about all the different forms of surfing. Yeah. Okay. And why they're important to do. If you look at Jerry, I don't know if there's anybody from his generation or from many other generations that have done what he's done. He rode surfing in the longboard era. He was a pioneer in the shortboard era. He was a great windsurfer. He's become a good kiteboarder. He was a good towing surfer, wake surfer, now foil surfing, now wing surfing, river surfer, park surfer. He does it all. He has done every form of surfing. He has no prejudice against any form of surfing. He's remarkable in that regard. Well, and, and he says the same thing, that his willingness to be a kook freed him up to live his life. It liberated him to embrace his future. Well, I
0: really love the snowboard in Little Element as well. You know, the fact that he just decided to move to Bend. And, you know, that, that bit with the family in the film is brilliant as well, because it really contextualizes it so nicely. Right. And I just really loved seeing his style on a snowboard, right. really. Um, yeah. So the other question about the film I was interested in was the music, because the music's really, I felt, an important part of it. Like, I I felt, I I mean, I don't really know where to start with it. I'm just quite interested in, like, it's how... It's one you, of
1: the hardest parts of making these films. It,
0: was it an original score? No. They so, were
1: all hand-picked pieces of music. So, yeah, and I, I, I did Everything.
0: I did wonder, because obviously it's really evocative of the era, because it, it feels to me like you've... And, and this might be a stretch but it felt to me like you were not into some of the classics you know well you have to of course but with yeah. the, the eras you're talking about as well I thought it worked really well I thought it really added to the, to the whole piece you, and it, it, I was fascinated really in how, in how you go about that because it struck me watching it like yeah this guy is, is a geek he's into his music like um,
1: uh, it's one of the most difficult parts of making these films is figuring out what is going to be the score wow jeez is that a, like a giant bowstring are we at a? Is there like a trash dump behind us? I think, I
0: think it's just London. <laughs> Fina, sorry, my okay, edi- my editor.
1: I'll tell you something. The first thing I do in making a film is I I start assembling the songs. Really, it's the very first thing I do. Right. And what I will do is I will assemble these bins of close to a thousand pieces of music. And when See, I'm I, driving, I love this stuff. When I'm driving, I will listen to songs, and slowly the songs start to inform to me what the film can feel and look like. And as I'm listening, I'll go, oh, this song will be perfect for the intro of Pipeline. Right. This song will be great in the g section. This song will be good in the early parts of Jerry's life with his family. And that's what I start, and I start mapping them out like that. And the other thing I do is I listen to all of my music on shuffle, Yeah. and I'll come across songs I didn't even know were in my library, and I'll go, oh, this is great. And I'll be driving along, I'll pick up my phone and shoot a picture of that song. Right. Later, I'll put that song in my bin and assign where it would go. Okay. And that's
0: how I do it. And that and and are you looking for a particular mood then? Like always. You, and and you and you're thinking about like, you know, the mood you try to evoke, like with the footage. And this is,
1: but this is before. Like, is this why you're shooting? Like you said, it was, it's 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 before I do anything. But oh, I'll do it. But I'll continue doing it the entire time. Yeah. The entire time. So, so I'm we, always looking for it. But because you have to think. Remember. There's something like between fifty and sixty pieces of music in this film. Well, that's to what I noticed. To get fifty or sixty, I yeah. gotta pull from about a thousand.
0: Yeah, and also they're stitched together so well. Like, you know, there's a lot of fragments, there's a lot of like just little little incidentals that just right. that just obviously like is it kind of emotional bed really, aren't they? To right. sort of carry that's the it. story. It's exactly
1: you know? what it is. It's an emotional bed. Yeah. Yeah. I was you really wanna set the tone through the music subtly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I did I I I just was struck by it's the kind of thing you don't often give much thought to oh until, until it
1: works really well. It's, it's intimidating to me when I think about starting a film and I think, oh, my God, how am I going to come up with the music on this? That's one of the most difficult things for me. Yeah. That alone. Yeah. yeah. And also the other challenge here was to find music that didn't overpower Jerry but pushed him. That was a challenge. I had a lot of songs when I started this that I wanted to use, and when I put them under Jerry, they didn't work at all. Okay. And it really was disappointing because I had to change my initial inspiration yeah. for the sound of this. I wanted some really heavy 70s rock and roll, Yeah. some live stuff, yeah. like Humble Pie, it didn't work right interesting it didn't work cuz it's a bit it's
0: quite psychedelic isn't it like a lot of what, the, the choice, some of the stuff uh, the choices yeah. particularly in the early 70s some of the period. stuff yeah, yeah. um but, so I, i'm i'm quite interested in in the theme of fostering creativity that seems to be coming up like on a on a general level you know you talked about that habit that you've got with jeremy well just with the music you oh, talked oh. about this kind of it sounds like you're always on. It sounds like you're always thinking creatively. It sounds like you've, you know, you've, whether it's the music, whether it's like you, the anecdote about kite surfing and watching Jerry and thinking, ah, you know, a little light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you have always had that kind of that that ability to kind of you, for your brain to work creatively in that way? or Have you had to sort of foster it like throughout your career?
1: I, I've had it since I was a kid to some extent because I was always interested in. I was always doing stuff. Yeah. But when I started Pal Peralta, my, um, the creative demands that were put on me, thinking up four different advertisements per month, yeah. creating a skateboard video every year, thinking up new product ideas, new graphics, it taught my brain. I taught, my brain was taught to work on a creative schedule. And so it's, 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 it's become normal for me yeah. to, have cre- to create things. To constantly think in a creative... Solving creative problems. Because that's... I, my brain has been trained that way, fortunately.
0: I, I feel like you can teach yourself to do it, though. Oh, without a doubt. I feel like it is a habit. It's a habit. That you need to learn. Yes. And if, uh, the reason I kind of wanted to talk about it on here is because I know you're doing the workshop later on as well, but it's a, it always strikes me as a real... You know, when people are like, oh, I'm not very creative. Like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not very... I'm always a bit like, but you can it's you it's not really it. the output that's the point it's the habit and the, and the it's engaging and yourself the doing and the making your brain think about these things in a particular way you know if you right. can find an insight like you've described when you just start kite surfing you see your friend you know react to a situation and draw right. a character insight from that which is what you did essentially that's a really brilliant example and that's that's available to anybody that is right it? you know that's just a that's just a a, a feeling of curiosity of 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 just trying to think of these insights. Same with the music thing, right. you know, like just just being engaged. Yes. you know, like it's and and obviously you're, because yeah, through the through the years, I imagine back then you were wearing many hats. Many hats. Yeah, so you, so it, it single conditioned single me. Single at a young swim, age. like you got to do it, right? Right,
1: and it conditioned me at a young age to learn how to do this, just like exercise. Yeah, it was the same thing. I'm just exercising my creative brain and so a certain output was expected every month and it yeah. became a normal thing four ads per month one video per year this guy's career has to do this this skater's career has to go there we got to think up a graphic for that guy just it was it was just a thing that developed so and i realized when i when i transitioned from there into filmmaking my brain had been set up for that so it acclimated to filmmaking very easily because of that
0: and did you do you feel that experience long fought for experience you know that's something you've worked hard to get to that point is that where you kind of start to trust your intuition creatively because you've you've made another couple of points during the conversation where you you know like put the music under jerry didn't work you know like kind of definitive like didn't work you know like you've talked about how you're looking for feelings insights and at some point I'm, I'm imagining you just really start to trust that intuition, that, which which kind of comes from... It's a really good question. ...the experience, yeah. you, know, yes. you know. You know you what I'm getting at, right?
1: I, look, I, I do not have an education. My whole... Uh, I owe all my success to intuition. Yeah. It's a combination of strategic thinking and intuition and somehow balancing those things. That's
0: what I was really interested in because when I look at the arc of your career, obviously, like, so many chapters to it, but it feels like that's a really common theme. You know, like, yeah. like, like you've been, I haven't been, ta-
1: I haven't been educated no one's in anything I have to done. do that.
0: And, th- and that's the other interesting thing about you. You're in your generation's position in our little world. Like you, that's, that's, for me, that's the pioneering bit, you know, like obviously the achievements, the, 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 the companies, the, the cultural touchstones, the, the films, like all that. Yeah. But on a, on another level, it's almost like a way of thinking that, is, that has, there's been the influence like creatively, you know, and that. That seems to me is the influence culturally you know that, that's led to the the creativity and the progression that we've been talking about is such an, such an important part of the culture, you know right yeah, so I just really found that interesting, and it's interesting to say that you it, it was almost like you had to learn because you
1: were in those positions, and what else are you going to do? Yes um, well, just to follow through with what you're saying, I'm not always working. And I've learned when I'm not always working how to keep that engine turning. Right. I read a lot of books. I'm an avid reader. I draw, and I'm always I've always got, and I garden a lot. I'm a plant collector. Right. So I've always got a lot of. If I'm not making a film, I can take that creative wheel that's yeah. always spinning in my brain, and I can apply it to other parts of my life, whether it's be you know gardening, surfing, or or something else.
0: Do you find that you go off on sort of themes? Get interested in themes and ideas and topics and kind of ex- and kind of bury yourself in those.
1: I, I you know what I've discovered in my later life, I think I'm OCD. Really, I think I have some OCD qualities because, I, not to the point where it's um where I would be psychologically, oh this person has a problem. Sure. But when I want to learn something, I cannot think of anything else. Yeah. I'm like literally like a dog that grabs onto something and just cannot stop biting onto it. Yeah. Conversely. When I have problems in my life, I have a hard time letting go of them as well. Okay. Because I, I, I obsess on them. Yeah. You know, I eventually let them go. Thank God. But I've realized I must have some OCD qualities, and I think I did when I was a kid, and I just didn't know it.
0: Do you think that was perhaps a big part of
1: your drive, like to achieve what you did at such? Well, I think it helped me achieve because I would, I would be so focused and want something so badly. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to build models. Okay. Like, it's really funny. I was talking to my girlfriend about this, and I was telling her lessons I learned from my parents without them knowing they were teaching me something. For, yeah. for instance, my parents both, like everybody in their generation, they smoke cigarettes. Okay. My dad one day said, enough, I'm done. And that was it. No drama. Okay? No Alan Carr. No nothing. He was like, <laughs> I'm done. About a year later, my mom said the same thing. I'm done. There was no, oh my gosh, where are my cigarettes? Like, there was no drama over it. That was a phenomenal lesson for me. Like you can do that. You can just decide I'm done. Okay. The other thing, um, I learned is I, when I wanted something as a kid, I tormented my parents, I gotta have, I gotta have this and what, what my parents did without even knowing it by not shutting me down, they taught me how to sell. Okay. Yeah. Because when you want something in life, you have to sell your idea to that person. You have to sell it. You have to get them excited about it. And they taught I. I was allowed to learn that from them. I remember one day I wanted this model that that was at the drugstore so bad I called my mom at work and said you got to buy this for me now because someone other kid's gonna get it. I'm 11 years old. <laughs> I talked her into calling the drugstore, buying it. Putting it on hold so that she could take me down there at the end of her workday, get it, come home, and I would go to my bedroom, get my money, and pay her back. I did that as a kid, and I look back now going, how the hell did I pull that? But they let me do that, and it really, it somehow taught me, you got this is how you get people excited. This is how you convince people. Right. And I've had to do this all my life.
0: Yeah, right. Well, sales
1: is just... But I mean, every time I want to get financing for a film, I have to explain to this person Sails. who yeah. writes the check yeah. why they want to do this. Yeah, film. yeah. Well, that's... I had to do this with George Powell. This is why we need to go this direction. Sure. Same thing. So on that.
0: One of the things I've found f- quite fascinating about middle age is like realizing the, the kind of hidden influences that your parents have, have left with you. And that's mm. a really classic example, that, isn't it? Such, a, such Not a, even trying. Not even like probably didn't even, wouldn't even remember it.
1: No, and if I brought it up to my
0: mom today, she'd go, really? Yeah, and I've I've remembered quite a lot of things like that recently when I've been a bit like, oh yeah. like Those
1: are the things you really learn from your yeah, parents.
0: Yeah, they are. And it's t- it seems to take a while for them to sort of filter through. Absolutely. As you, you yeah. know, when you're younger, you don't, where you're just a bit like, <laughs> fuck off, mum, aren't you you know, <laughs> but then you're suddenly like, "Oh yeah, okay, that's what was going on, yeah, and I, it's it's a real generation, it's a slow movement down the generations, isn't yeah. it, which I find really quite fascinating, yeah. you know, um so you mentioned earlier the the transition to to filmmaking, if you like, um it sounded when you were talking about like that that was quite a distinct change. Is that how it happened?
1: Well, I worked in television for seven years, Okay. and it was the only time I ever felt in my life that I've been employed since I was a busboy at age sixteen. Right? Yeah, I was learning a tremendous amount, but creatively not fulfilled at all. And I was working all the time, but I was not enjoying myself at all.
0: And did that opportunity come about because of the work you'd done um, through skateboarding?
1: Well, no. What happened? Well, what happened when when I when I was making my skateboarding videos, a number of uh, Hollywood producers ended up seeing my films because their kids were watching them. I mean, they must have been hard to escape, you know, for that. Well, and even that, George Harrison couldn't escape it because yeah. his son Danny was watching them. Exactly, yeah. You know?
0: So many great stories like that about the era, right? It was right. a real first time it crossed over, wasn't right. it?
1: Right, right. So these the, these producers are seeing this, and I was, I was doing some interesting camera work back then, moving camera yeah. from a skateboard and i was doing some interesting editing work so i started getting opportunities as an action director in motion pictures okay so i was doing that concurrently you know as i was running the company i would take these side jobs once in a while right that led to more opportunities in television directing all sorts of things until finally i decided it's going to be one or the other and i chose the other and then i started strong but then i kind of like went into this kind of middle zone where i wasn't these projects i was doing wasn't they, ju- they were just work. They didn't, I had a really hard time being creative. I would have, I would get brought in for a job and the network would say to me, break out of the box, man. We really we're bringing you here because we know you'll do something different. So I would go ahead and do something different. And then they would look at it and they go, well, we didn't mean that. <laughs> and that happened over and over until funny. I just got so discouraged. I, I just realized that I'm never going to get anywhere doing this right. in that field.
0: I imagine that's this do you get told as well that's the apprenticeship you need to serve you know like yeah and
1: and as i said i was learning a lot yeah you know i was learning how a budget i was learning how to tell stories like you know on a dime going yeah. in and you know um, but it was just not fulfilling
0: but you recognized it was time to to change
1: yeah and i was trying to change the whole time but yeah. i couldn't get out right so how did you get out well um There was a, in in, in 1999, A remember the magazine Spin? Yeah. It was like a Rolling Stone, a punk Rolling Stone.
0: Like the the Alternative Nation Rolling Stone, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: They did an article entitled, uh, In Search of Skateboarding's Founding Fathers Dogtown, something like that. And that article became very popular in Hollywood. They wanted to buy the life rights to us to make the story. And that's where I got the idea to do the documentary. Okay. And that became my documentary career, with that film. And what was the road like to getting that off the ground? Then
0: first project, like you say, it took re- about
1: a year of yes and no's, and fi- okay, we got financing. Oh, we don't have financing. Oh, we might have it. Nope, we don't have it. To okay, it's over. It's done. Right. It's never going to happen. To suddenly, no, somebody came through. Okay. Yeah. Right. And it's it's very it's a very high low road. Yeah, very, I mean, again, that part
0: of it. The, the production and the finance side is, is very rarely spoken about, isn't it's very it? Hard. And
1: I imagine that's probably like 70% of, of Check the, this of, out. Of the I, gig, right? I, it took a year to get financing. I made it in a year, okay? And I went on the road for a year to promote it. I made about 35 grand on that film. Really? Yes. Wow. I don't, and I, I get this I conceived it directed it and wrote it i don't own a penny of it i've never participated in a penny of profit on it is that is that just the deal that it's you... just the way that that business works wow that's, it's it's harsh that's crazy but i didn't make it for money i sure. made it because i got the opportunity to make it and all of my films um that's not how i make a living Really? And I'm aware of that's not how I make a living.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, so I make a com- living
1: commercial direct. Commercial, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, another part of your career that I was going to ask you about. Yeah, because that's how I do it. So, right. Yeah, you, there's just no money in these films. I don't own any of them. I, I think I'm, I mean, I, they literally come out of me. Yeah. And I don't even get participation. I
0: think a lot of people are going to be pretty surprised slash horrified mm. to hear that.
1: Because hey, you, people think I'm a like mega millionaire. Well, it's not because even, they see my films on cable. They see them on planes.
0: It's not even that. It's more the it's more the importance of them. You know, like in in our culture, yeah. like you know, like they're 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 significant yeah. things. Yeah, and they're also significant because they tell the stories in the right way. You know, mm, like because okay. well because well it's, it's a well-worn mm. theme but you know somebody else coming in and making that film Right. right? I mean we've all seen a lot of those <laughs> right Right.
1: no but I'm grateful that I've been able to do this I'm not bitter that I don't you know that, it's the, that the business model is like this that's the way it is I'm very grateful that I make a decent living doing commercial work yeah super grateful and I'm grateful I can balance the two out
0: but I was going to ask you I mean you've answered the question but I'm quite surprised to hear it because when you mentioned that experience with Dogtown Z-Boys I just kind of assumed that that would have
1: given you more power it did it did because I was able to get Riding Giants off the ground. Yeah, so because I proved that I that a movie that I made could make money, because Sony Classics bought it, distributed it, and it did decent for a for a, a documentary. So what did that
0: increased power look like on Riding Giants? Is it more creative it power? Just, was it more?
1: Well, first of all, it got me into doors that I couldn't have gotten into previously. Right, and it got me closer to financiers. And so with the next financier who financed that film, he knew that I knew how to do this and that there was a good chance I would do it for his film, which I did. And so that film, again, was bought by a studio. It it uh, It did a run, did more money than Dogtown. So that raised my stake a little more so I could make the next one. And your commercial career is kind of running in tandem with this as well. It's running in tandem and between films, I do commercial work. Yeah. yeah. And did you always recognize that that was probably the way it was going to be? Here he is again. With no, his, uh, to be with honest his, with, his, with <laughs> you, I didn't... <laughs> with his lift. To, yeah. I actually originally didn't want to do commercial work. Right. I was kind of dragged into it kicking and screaming. Um, and it took me a long time to get proficient at it. Yeah. And I was very... Um, the people that represented me, I've thanked them many times saying, look, I appreciate you guys that you stuck with me. But now I look at it, I've learned more about filmmaking doing that than my films. Because every time I do a commercial or a, a long form thing commercially, I have to learn how to tell a story in a different medium. In sure. 50 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, three minutes. Yeah. That's a great discipline. Yeah, right. I also get to work with really good equipment. I'm also not under the gun like I am with my films where I have no money, sure, so I get to um, expand as a filmmaker,
0: yeah, I mean it's the reality of most creative careers, isn't it? you've got to find the balance between creativity and commerce. yeah, that's it. I mean you've
1: you got to support yourself, you've got to do it, and you've yeah. got
0: to take you've got to take those gigs yes you gotta I yourself. mean, the film has some interesting things to say about commercialism, the Jerry film, yeah, with the uh, the lightning bolt yes section yes, which was also really, really interesting. Um, Warshaw in particular is quite scathing at points. Oh,
1: he has to be. <laughs> the photos are scathing. I some mean. of the
0: some of the some of that air is just so. I mean, I was watching it with my wife last night, and she was like, "I would definitely wear some of those like two <laughs> two piece <laughs> lightning bolt combos," which you probably would now be classed as kind of hipster wear, wouldn't they? Yeah. But, um But yeah, like it. it y- you mentioned that you had to be drag kicking and screaming into the commercial sphere though right
1: was that what why was that? it wasn't because of being anti-commercial I was gonna say it's not no, like no. it just I just didn't I think I was probably nervous because I probably didn't know what I was doing and I was very nervous okay so I was, it was like I, was, imp- I think it was for that reason
0: imposter syndrome-y sort yeah. of thing
1: yeah I was just nervous I didn't feel like I technically knew enough right and in those and also the um, the other reason is this I've always worked from my own ideas. Sure. When I work commercially, I have to take someone else's idea and figure out a way to own it. That was hard for me. That took a long time for me to understand how to do that. And now I've done it. And now I do it very gracefully. But it took a while to learn that. Right. To take your idea and somehow make it my own. Yeah. And then give it back to you as yours. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. I was, I've always been doing my own ideas. Well,
0: especially when you're creative, dealing with, you know, can you
1: just change that a little bit? Yeah. Well, <laughs> y- y- yeah. And you're dealing with, you know, both an agency and a client. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's it's, another... Uh, those are know, challenges. But, but they, they, I've learned so much in that field. And if you look at the way that I shot the interviews... Yeah. ...in the Jerry film and the set that I built, I learned all that doing commercial work. Well, it's
0: technically so... Like the lighting, I was like, I mean, look at the... It's just, right. It's, it's real pretty. Te- technically yeah and i learned that from commercials i was really was like yeah this feels like really you know like considered and obviously your vision of what it should look like right um yeah it's really it's really fascinating the imposter syndrome thing's interesting because again i think people listen to this and knowing what you've achieved and know might be quite surprised to hear that that you would still be faced with a new creative um you know opportunity or situation and and feel like a fraud (laughs) does that ever go away Please um, say it does. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't
1: go away. What it does is it it quiets down. Sure. But it rears its head at certain times. Is this another thing that you can learn to to control?
0: Like we talked about the intuition thing, the trust thing in your in your own judgment. Is this? Some
1: it's what you learn is you learn to manage it. You learn to live. Oh, it's this again. Oh God, I got to get through this. Yeah. It's just managing it. Yeah. It do, none of this stuff, I think, really goes away. Yeah. I, I really don't think it does. I don't think there's ever a day when you stand on a mound and say, I'm, I'm done. I don't think that happens. And that's one of the things I think to realize in life that these insecurities, they never leave us. They're always going to be there, especially if you keep learning. And that also has to do with failure. You know, there, failure is a huge part of success. You can't succeed without falling on your face and failing. And I have learned in my life how to get through it. I know exactly what happens when I fail. I get really upset, self-pity. I think I'm done. I think there's never going to be anything, you know, like it's I I'm in a desert scape. Yeah. You know, and I get really bummed out and I know that I just have to let myself get through this, with however long it takes and I will eventually rebound and I will start it back up again. What what do you consider to be your biggest failure? With the biggest one I've had? Yeah. Uh, I know Boy, that's a really good question. I'd have to give that serious thought. And I'm not sure I could think of the answer here, but I can tell you that when people look at my life, they only see the exclamation points. They don't see the failures. And so they don't see the struggles I've been through. A lot of the commercials I've done were failures. I let that agency down. Some of the films I've done could have been better. You know, some of the things I did with Paul Peralta could have been way better you know, so you just,
0: (laughs) he's he's gone. (laughs) Yeah. So
1: it's like, um, but, but when I'm in the middle of it, um, when I fail today, it's exactly like when I failed two years ago yeah, or three years ago or a year ago, I know the process. And so I know how to get through it. And that's what I'm saying to you is these things never leave us. You just learn to deal with them and you get familiar with how you do it. Yeah, that's it. And, and you, and you have to get familiar with it because these setbacks are what can stop us from doing what we want to do. That's the thing in life. None of the things, everything that we want has obstacles in the way. And if those obstacles stop you, you're done. You're done. Yeah, and this is why
0: I've kind of been honing on this theme a little bit through this conversation really, because you know, that is just the reality of a creative life. Well, it's the reality of life, as you say. But it it's is. also the reality of a, it's especially the reality of a creative life. You know, if you right. aspire to creativity, if you aspire to make things, um yeah, I often quite think well, like you're
1: going to embrace uncertainty. You're the, never going to live a certain life.
0: Yeah. And I I also think for the sort of post war generation sort of boomer to gen x as well pre-internet you might say success was quite defined in quite narrow terms in terms of creativity well, same
1: job for whole life yeah that- uh,
0: yeah exactly but also like there was obviously more gatekeepers there was obviously more traditional oh, it's, notions it's, it's, of right. what of what a creative success looked like which i think it's really healthy that that doesn't exist anymore personally because i think i think they could be restrictive yes. you know like as in you know you've got to have a, a huge success you've got to get a record deal you've got to do you know you've got to do this traditional There's r- so whatever. many
1: more things you can do now
0: and and that's another lesson from your career like you've you've been you know omnivorous with the opportunities that you've had like whether it was you know skateboarding pal peralta, like right. that, that that which we haven't really talked about but um, right. through to the commercial side through to the films that you make you know it's been a it's been a kind of Overcoming these obstacles, these personal things that you discuss that can hold you back, and kind of still managing to do it on your own terms—like right. it's it's
1: it's fascinating, yeah. really. I don't know if I learned this through skateboarding, but when we first started skating pools, I didn't realize this at the time, but I've come to realize it looking back. The most important technique we learned in riding swimming pools was learning how to fall, because if you couldn't learn how to fall in a swimming pool. You couldn't ride the pool. It was more important to learn how to fall properly than do an aerial because that's what kept us alive. That's what kept us progressing. And if you think about learning to fall is just learning to fail. If you learn how to fail in life and you understand it, you can get through life and get what you want because none of us get what we want without going through this. It just doesn't happen. It looks like it happens when you look at other people, but it really doesn't. We all go through it. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, I'll I'll share something with you that this was an instinct. You talked about an intuition. In the 11th grade, I was tested, I did an uh, academic test, and they found out in the 11th grade that I was reading at a seventh grade level. Really destroyed my self esteem, I have to tell you. Um, When I was 17 or 18 years old, I was uh, shooting, being photographed for a film, skateboard film. And we, were, we broke for lunch one day, and I was sitting at a bench with a bunch of skateboarders eating a sandwich. And I looked across the field, and I saw the director of photography lying under a tree reading a book. And it was so disturbing to me. And I, I walked over to him, and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and he looked up to me, and he goes, what do you mean? I go, why are you reading a book? And he goes, what do you mean? Like, I couldn't understand why someone would choose to do that. It was so troubling to me. And I said, but you're not going to school, are you? He goes, no. I go, but why would you choose to do that if a teacher didn't tell you to do that? And he went on to explain to me the joy of reading a book and what it's done to his life. Man, I struggled with that for months. And this voice in me said, you have got to learn not only to read, but you have to learn to love it. Because you're out of school now and you are your teacher. Something told me that, like... And that was a a game changer for me. From that point forward, I became an avid reader of all nonfiction because I realized I need to be the teacher of my life. I need to continue teaching myself, exposing myself to this world. One of the most fundamental things I did in my whole life was that. And I'm thankful that that intuition hit me. That's been a huge part of my life, huge part. Well, I'm gonna ask you one more
0: then to end. What's the last good book you read? That's a tricky one. I can never answer that when people ask me that.
1: No, no, no. I read a book called The Insect Apocalypse. I just recently read that. I read a, a couple of books. I read this great book recently on the making of the Godfather. Okay, really interesting. Yeah, I read yeah. a great book recently on um, Dennis Hopper's life. He and his wife uh, Brooke Hayward, I think it is. Wow, but that's fascinating. Got some, book.
0: Well, that's got some tales.
1: Yeah, great tales, and a, and a, and a really interesting time in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, one of the most amazing books that, that I will share with you that I've read in the, this last couple of years is I read the rise and fall of the Third Reich.
0: Oh, I read that recently, William Shirer. It's, How it's, is that book? That book blew my mind. Like that. I was, like well, I've, I've, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's like thousand five hundred pages but long, isn't it? And riveting. It's absolutely riveting. And the the early history of it is incredible because you don't know that part, do no, you? No, nobody you does. Know, you know, like the you know the main bit. But the early years, yes, it, yeah, it, no, as but you can tell, it had think, a similar impact on me. Don't that book. you think every
1: human being should be forced to read that book so we can get perspective on how we prevent this from ever happening? I again? mean, I,
0: I just, I just thought it was so brilliantly written. I mean, it's like it's a page turner. Yes, you know? total page turner, and the fact that he was there and that he's used all the radio transcripts. Yes, yeah, no, I, I absolutely loved it because uh, I remember. It's not really that available. It doesn't really seem to
1: be in print that much anymore. Well, just electronically.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know? No, it is
1: brilliant. And I, yeah. I think it's... If you like that, you should uh, read The Splendid and the Vile. Okay. Don't know that one. It's um, Eric Larson. It's about Churchill in power during the bombing of London. Okay. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds right. uh, And this guy does a great job in... Making it all about the people, right? It's so interesting. Yeah, such a great book, brilliant. Anyways, you read these things, and it gives you such perspective on life, and it makes you realize, you know what? I'm not alone here. No, people have had greater problems than I've ever had. People have had so f- they've accomplished things that you know that I today am the beneficiary of. So it gives us perspective and and um, lets us be grati- show gratitude. Yeah, you know, for what they did so that we could live this life. Yeah, so that we can foil and surf and skateboard exactly you know? exactly hey stacy that was brilliant yeah man this has been
0: enjoyable thank you so really much enjoyable conversation yeah, that was great so there you go that was me and stacy and i hope you enjoyed it what a total legend day eh? uh, i was so impressed with stacy after spending the day with him um it kind of reminded me of the time i was lucky enough to spend <laughs> name drop alert some time with david carson the other year um he was also just really impressive uh, you know, and on top of a pretty grueling regime. You know, like I said at the beginning, Stacey was three weeks, I think, into this promo tour. It was a pretty full-on day, this. We did our chat at 10 a.m., then we headed into town for some lunch. I, You know, I did tag along with the Patagonian team, which I think was all right. I went to check out the skate exhibition at Route 1 in Covent Garden, which you should completely check out, by the way. Then we got the Lizzie Line, when you know, you know, to the Genesis Cinema in Whitechapel, Uh, where he did another hour-long interview and then he did a two-hour filmmaker workshop in front of a mystifyingly small audience, um, albeit one which was full of, you know, middle-aged blokes making it all about them, which is a bit of a shame. Um, Then he did another hour-long interview, then presumably some dinner, into the film showing, and then another 45-minute long Q&A, which took us to about half ten at night. Just an object lesson in the fact that finishing the creative part doesn't mean the work is done, far from it. Um, so good on you, Stacey. I'm big up for your time and insights. All right. Housekeeping corner. It's been a while. So I think it's time for a rousing chorus of thank fuck they've gone. Um, if you're still with me. Yeah. Hectic couple of weeks since I got COVID. Firstly, I did another one of those podcasting workshops that I did last year for a company. Similar to the one I did last year turned out great, actually. Um, I think I'm getting pretty good at these now. It's basically a day-long workshop, which is ostensibly about how to make podcasts and interview people, which is what I think I might call the talk. A little bit of a Dale Carnegie nod there. Um, But really, it's about storytelling and how you create the space to tell yours and other people's stories. Um, Think of it as a bit of a less, less wafty version of like the do lectures and all that stuff it went so well that i think i'm finally going to get my shit together and add a page to the website so people can book me for one of those corporate gigs and also finally sort out an online version as well um i mean it's funny as i mentioned earlier i've sacked off facebook and twitter so the only ones i'm on these days is substat like i said instagram which i'm barely hanging on in Unbe- unbelievably i'm on linkedin a lot these days um And fuck me, some of the utter rubbish that gets spoken on there is really incredible. I'm particularly fascinated by the gnomic, supposedly enigmatic, but actually quite terrible way that people write posts on there with loads of those weird line breaks and pseudo-philosophical insights. Anyway, there's some people talking some proper shite on there. So I figured as my offering is actually quite insightful and dare I say useful I might as well get involved so uh, watch this space anyway after that I headed to South Devon to do that swim I've been training for uh, 6k down the river Avon not that one to Bantham which was incredibly good fun and I recommend it if you're into that type of thing did it during the heat wave so it was beautiful clarity of water um, rapid current, did it in an hour and 20, um, which is, you know, there's nowhere I can swim 6k in an hour and 20 without a current, but it was good. Um, then I spent the week in Totnes hanging out with Boog, Peg, Owen, Rico, and our lovely new goddaughter, Coco. Um, then I went up to town for this, uh, and then I headed back home 10 days later. So I'm back in Brighton today, second day, houses in chaos, piles of washing everywhere. Um, spent the day writing three to-do lists, And also wrote a post about the final week of the DB Times Looking Sideways fund, which I've been talking about for a while. Yeah, we're closing the gates on this first round of the fund on July the 21st. By the time this comes out, you'll have a few days left to apply. So to recap, we're offering two winners, €5,000 each in funding and mentoring. Well, not 5000 worth of mentoring, but funding and mentoring. Um, and the idea is we want to help people um, get their projects out there and give them a leg up into the industry, a creative leg up, if you can imagine such a horrific mixed metaphor. Um, what we're after doing is finding some new voices and helping them get into the industry um, and try and help some new talents get into the game. I mean, I've been asked quite a lot, like, what are you after? Just a good story. doesn't matter what the medium is. Um, we've had a lot of, you know, people sending us things saying like, oh, I really want to go to Bali with my mate you're not going to win. You know, we need a story. Format avenue doesn't matter. You know, I had someone today message me saying, "Well, I'm a poet." And I was like, "If your idea is good enough, we'll look at it." Um so yeah, you can find out more at my Substack. Um that address again, lookinsideways.substack.com where there's a post that says something like introducing the LS Times looking side the DB fund. Um, But either way, you can email me on podcast at We Are Looking Sideways, comment on Substack or DM me on Instagram at We Look Sideways if you want to find out more. And I also want to say this, the cash is a big part of it. I've had a few people go, fucking hell, that's a lot of money, isn't it? But it's a bit of a flag in the ground, this, because it's important to get paid properly for your expertise and ideas in this day and age. I didn't really think this needed saying anymore, but apparently it does Um, it's something, you know, I've been in this game a long time. I've been doing this like 25 years and I've noticed for about that long that way too many companies in our industry have a business model that is predicated on using people's talents and not paying them properly. I speak as somebody who runs a marketing agency who must have fielded over a thousand queries from startups after in marketing expertise who are like, we want you to run all our marketing and we've got 500 quid. Um, you know, I get that. That's often a lack of experience. But even, but a little more insidious is when brands and companies take the piss out of creatives by basically not paying them properly. Um, and I was reminded of this recently when I was asked to speak at a forthcoming event, which is making a big song and dance out of their diversity and accessibility creds, and yet apparently aren't paying their speakers. And when I queried this, instead came out with the usual line about networking and just exposure to justify it. Now, I thought that was an absolute load of old rubbish for years. Um, And in this day and age where there's a real drive to find new voices for the industry, to increase diversity, to increase accessibility, paying people properly for their time and expertise, if you ask me, really is the lowest of low-hanging fruit. And it's not like it's not spoken about often, especially around discussions about diversity. I mean, I've personally seen... I don't know, countless talks about diversity where the questions are always like, well, how can we improve diversity? And the answer's always like, just pales properly. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't pay people properly. It's like not paying interns. You're basically narrowing the field so it's only open to privileged people, people that can afford it. I mean, this event that I got asked to do, obviously I could do it for free. I'm lucky. I don't need the money. But it's not the point. The point is that if you're serious about diversity and, and accessibility, the way you approach this really simple question, do you pay people properly, is a clue as to how serious you really are about this extremely important topic. Um, I mean, I mentioned the entire conversation to one of my friends at DB who I'm working with on this fund. And he was like, well, the problem is, you know, even when people refuse, and yet obviously I did say no to this opportunity for these reasons, there's always going to be people who fall for it and do it. And that set, then sets the bar. And that's people then start thinking it's fine. Um, you know, I asked another friend who I know is getting asked to do a lot of stuff like this at the minute. And I asked, and said, are you, are you making sure you're getting paid properly? And she was basically like, well, no one's ever offering me money. So I just don't think I'm worth it. And I haven't got the confidence to ask for it. I mean, it drives me mad. Make sure you're getting paid properly. And it's a stand for the type of industry you want to see and the type of place you want to be. If you're serious about accessibility and diversity, just fucking pay people properly. It's not complicated. Or do some research and look into it. It's a pretty well-worn topic, this. Anyway, this is why the fund comes with mentoring and comes with the type of fee that creatives should be expecting for the type of project we're trying to create here. I really don't think in the year 2022, this is rocket science. Um, so, Yeah. There we go. All right, Usu- usual housekeeping corner rant. Um, bit of a long one, that. But, you know, I think it's important, that topic. So it's why I wait to get it off my chest, as usual. That's what this is for, after all. So that's me for this week. I'll be back soon with another one. But in the meantime, hope you enjoyed space, stay see even. And I'll see you next week. Nice one.